Nearly eight months after a fanatical mob of Trump supporters invaded the U.S. Capitol, the House Select Committee investigating the events of January 6th has signaled it is preparing for a sweeping probe that will leave no stone unturned. This week, it sent a wide-ranging request for documents to eight federal agencies seeking emails, text messages, and phone records of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and other top Trump staffers, as well as Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, Lara Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Jared Kushner, not to mention Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, and Steve Bannon, as well as members of Congress and their staffs. It's a breathtaking, possibly unprecedented request, but raises the question, what will they actually find? Well, there's no doubt many of those from whom the committee is seeking documents actively promoted the bogus idea that election fraud had robbed Donald Trump of a second term in office. A new Reuters report states that so far the Justice Department, in its own investigations, has uncovered scant evidence that the January 6 rioters were being directed to commit violence as part of a criminal plot from the top to overturn the election. We'll talk to the reporter who broke that controversial story, Mark Hosenball, and we'll check in with law professor Kimberly Whaley on what the investigation might yet uncover on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we're going to take a break today from the events in Afghanistan, which we've been spending a lot of time on lately. To remind folks that uh, this year began with another cataclysmic event that is still under investigation with still many questions unanswered. And that's, of course, the events of January 6th. And I got to say, the story uh, by our old colleague from Newsweek, Mark Hosenball, uh, raised a lot of eyebrows uh, the other day when he reported that uh, federal prosecutors and the FBI just simply has not found evidence or much evidence so far that the horrific events of January 6th were part of some grand conspiracy. In short, that they haven't found, even though they've got all these emails and social media postings and text messages of the more than 500 rioters they've arrested, they haven't yet seen a uh, connection to communications from the White House to tell them to go do what they were doing to create the kind of violence and mayhem that we did. Now, that doesn't mean it's not there, but it is, it does um, raise some questions about how far the January 6th committee is going to be able to go in this probe. Well, except, Mike, there is a critical difference, which is that the FBI and the Department of Justice are conducting a criminal inquiry. They're held to a certain standard of evidence, and they've got to match it up against certain, you know, kind of criminal statutes. Um, and the January 6th Commission is engaging in a different sort of inquiry and investigation, one that is more political. And I mean political in the in the, you know, kind of the old-fashioned good sense of the word political and public. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it, they are kind of 
they're apples and oranges. Yeah. And, and I actually, and, and I, let me just one more thing, which is, you know, Victoria mentioned uh, the uh, high standards that you're held to in criminal cases. There are, of course, multiple civil lawsuits against Trump and many of his associates. One, one just the, filed, and, by right, the way. I mean, I'm about right. to mention that. And, and the participants uh, in the uh, January 6th assault on the Capitol. And the one that was just filed a couple of days ago is being brought by seven members of the uh, Capitol Police Force who are alleging that Donald Trump took part in a conspiracy to undermine democracy to, in fact, they, what, what they well, allege well, look, is- but what, can I just say, yeah. he clearly did that. We've known that from the get-go in his uh, efforts to promote the bogus idea that there was election fraud that robbed him of his rightful victory. There's no question he did that. And also, the we know what happened in Georgia. We know about his phone call to the uh, Georgia Secretary of State saying, just find me the 11,000 votes I need <laughs> to flip the state. Arizona and the U.S. Department right, of Justice. Of um, I, I think one of my favorite anecdotes from uh, Arizona and the entire 2020 election is that the uh, the governor of Arizona was literally signing the certificate of ascertainment certifying that Biden had won Arizona's electors. And as he's on camera, his phone rings with a call from Trump. And the and the governor yeah. of Arizona kind of declines, but you know Trump was uh, was not. And that's being, a Republican governor. By yeah, the way. Trump he was just not says it's being a Republican legislature. Yeah, Trump right. was not being shy about this. I gotta yeah. say when when I when I uh, read uh, the Hosenball story, first of all, I was not all that surprised because we uh, heretofore have not seen any actual evidence that Trump was directing the assault that took place on on January 6th. And in fact, to the contrary, there is a fair amount of reporting that suggested that Trump was actually surprised when he saw the violence occurring uh, on that day, whether you can believe that. I mean, he might have been surprised, but also relishing it, but that he didn't realize that that was going to happen. But I have to say, the, the other thing that I thought... Uh, so, I reading, mean, it's, it's the, like, should, should you be surprised when you invite a bunch of, you know, kind of white supremacist groups with violent histories that they end up being no, violent? No, I mean, no, 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 yeah. absolutely not. But that's different from, yeah. uh, just to go to your point about, you know, yeah. the, the threshold for a criminal case, that's different from actually organizing and directing a cons- conspiracy. But I have to say, the other thing I was thinking when I read and thought about the Hosenball story... Um, is that what's scarier, you know, an, an organized conspiracy or something that happens spontaneously uh, because a president uses this rhetoric and, and it's kind of call to action to his followers. The fact that an unorganized conspiracy took place with hundreds and hundreds of people feeling that they could just assault the Congress and try to stop uh, the certification uh, of an election is pretty scary because it suggests that uh, there's something in the water out there right now. And these kinds of things will continue to happen. They don't have to be organized by one particular group or necessarily even one leader. So 
I don't know if it should give us uh, any comfort at all that the, this conspiracy wasn't organized in the way that it would be if you were going to bring a criminal right, uh, case. Right. And, and I want to be clear, I, I'm not, I, before the Twitterverse starts going after me, uh, which it often does after uh, our uh, crosstalks here, uh, I'm not saying this was not worth doing and it's not worth seeking these records. Uh, I think they should, because I think it will, you know, certainly add to our storehouse of knowledge about everything that led up to the events of January 6th. Because, Mike, I, I know you're just licking your chops hoping someone leaks all of those records to you, right? aren't you? <laughs> and, and, yeah. and we will, and I will, you know, not hesitate to publish them if they do, if we do learn something. But I, I guess my point is this. First of all, the true outrageousness of Trump's conduct here was in plain sight. I mean, he was actively and continues to actively promote this like ridiculous idea that he actually won the election and that stirred has stirred people up and it is uh, a threat to our civic comedy as it as it were but but it's not only about Donald Trump right it is also right. about the people inside the government who he was able to leverage to try to hold on to power um, in a way that you know that that violated that would have violated the Constitution, and so you know go, going back to these letters that the committee has sent out seeking documents. I mean, if you read through them, you know there's some interesting tidbits in there. Like for example, uh, they are asking for emails and other records relating to Kosh Patel, who was the uh, a Trump loyalist and who was the chief of staff, the acting chief of staff, uh, to, or. Chief of Staff to the Acting Secretary of Defense. And now regularly after, appears on Fox, by the way. After the fall He's election, a right. Fox and, commentator, uh, you know, yeah. he, he had been an aide to Devin Nunes and, um, you know, a lot of questions about what his role was during this period and a lot of other people inside the government who were participating in, you know, some kind of a conspiracy, <laughs> apparently. And so it's important to uh, get those records to fully investigate uh, their conduct and hold people accountable who need to be held accountable, even if it's in the con congressional oversight context. But yeah, but there are two other points that I think are worth making here. You know, first of all, yes, in a, in a case like Patel, who was, I believe, chief of staff at the Defense Department at the time, there should be no problem getting his official records, phone records, emails from his government account and all that. I think they're going to have problems getting a lot of these other records uh, that they are seeking. Certainly, Trump is going to assert executive privilege, as are you know, Meadows and anybody who's in communication with Trump, and that's going to get litigated, and that's going to take a while. You know, so one should not expect sort of imminent breakthroughs on that front. And then to Victoria's point about, well, this is a political, not in a partisan sense, I think that's the way you were meaning it, not a criminal inquiry. And that's true. But the problem is that it is a partisan inquiry, except for those two Republicans, Kinsinger and Liz Cheney. Uh, no other Republicans are on the committee. Kevin McCarthy is not participating. There's no sort of bipartisan buy-in to this investigation, and that's going to undercut the political impact of whatever the committee comes up with, because it'll just be a sort of once again partisan food fight between two sides and 
we'll see how much traction uh, it got. We all watched, were riveted by the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, which had lots of damning evidence about how Trump riled up the crowd and didn't do anything to curtail it once things got out of hand. So, so yeah. I mean, Mike, well, I don't, I don't know. There, the way, there, there, are, one... there are actually two Republicans on the committee. I mean, I said, you, two you, Republicans, right? So, yeah. so, and and we know that there are more members of the House who voted to impeach, and there are many yeah. Republican senators who voted. So, I, I don't understand how you can say it's not bipartisan. It may not have a lot of Republicans, but it does have some. Well, okay. The Republican leader of the House is not, you know, uh, his nominees to be on the committee were rejected. And so as a result, they're not participating. So, you know, that is the organized Republican caucus in the House for whatever it's worth. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying that's the cold reality here. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, for the historical record, uh, for nothing else, it is critical that we learn everything we possibly can about the events of of that day and and the and the surrounding efforts uh, to uh, essentially overturn a, a fair election. So there's I, I'll go along with that. Yes. Amongst other things, because <laughs> I, I, I was this that yeah. was this a dress rehearsal for a contested election in 2024? I mean, there are more than, more than a few people who are or lots about that. of contested elections in 2022, which, yep. um, you know, we could get, by the way, on both sides, because, you know, if the Democrats can't block all these new Republican legislatures from enacting the uh, voting bills that they have, they are in the process of passing. The Democrats are going to claim that the 2022 elections won by uh, won by Republicans were somehow fraudulent or are not legitimate because okay, but that, the Republicans. I, I think that is vote. a, a I, th- I think you may be trying to draw a false parallelism there. They, they will no, they I'm will raise questions about happen. it, but they're not. Yeah, going to, uh, I don't. So think, I, th- I, I doubt we they're going to say. You, we will hold you to account on that prediction. <laughs> So, I, so I, let's I'm mark this. Let's mark this. And uh, okay, if the Republicans <laughs> get control of the House, the Democrats will claim foul. Okay, or, or many Democrats will claim foul. I'm, I'm. We will see. Anyway, we got lots to talk about with our two good guests, um, Mark Hosenball and Kimberly Whaley. So let's get to it. As we speak, the committee to investigate the January 6th attacks has just submitted requests for voluminous records from the National Archives, for communications records from Donald Trump's White House and other government agencies on the events leading up to January 6th. So the question on the table is, what are they going to find and what does it add up to? And um, we've got, as I mentioned in the introduction, Kim Whaley, law professor at the University of Baltimore Law School, a frequent guest on this program, and Mark Hosenball, reporter for Reuters. Kim and Mark, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's start out with this committee request. Clearly, the Democrats on the committee think they're going to find important evidence in getting these records from the White House and other government agencies. 
Kim, what do you expect we're going to see from this document request, and uh, how does it further the goals of the committee? Well, it seems to me this is basic ABC lawyering, where you start with documents and then you follow up and decide who to speak with. So where there are, I think, 540 criminal investigations, arrests, slash prosecutions of individual insurrectionists, and the important piece of, of this committee is to get behind the scenes what happened in the lead up and the day, um, because law enforcement at a minimum was spectacularly flawed. If anyone uh, watched it in real time, who spent time in Washington might share the shock and awe and not in a good way that it was just sort of, there wasn't a presence there. So what, what broke down on that end? I think they wanna know who was involved in decisions to not make decisions and decisions to not take steps to have a stronger police presence there. As I wrote in a piece for the Bulwark, you know, there are mechanism, mechanisms in place, two of which involve sort of advance uh, coordination with law enforcement for large scale events like an inauguration or even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's funeral. And it would seem that these kinds of preparations could have been made given that Donald Trump back in December was tweeting be there uh, to his followers and there was anticipation of violence and certainly the possibility of a lot of people. Plus we had this sacred event really of uh, counting the certifications, the electoral vote. So my guess is they want to get the documents to see who the players are and then the lawyers step two would be then to identify who they want to speak to. And as you know, they are also seeking phone records from third party phone companies around text communications, including to and from members of Congress on that day, just to see who who within the sort of power structure had involvement in what ended okay. up sort of a, a bloody chaos. Right. But Kim, look, here's the, uh, you used a term that we've all used in the context of January 6th, and that is insurrectionists, which implies a plot to overturn the government of the United States. Uh, right. But Mark, you did a piece last week for Reuters that got a lot of attention about the Justice Department and FBI's investigations into January 6th, in which you concluded that the FBI has found scant evidence that what took place on January 6th was an organized plot to overturn the election results. And this is despite arrests of more than 570 people. It, presumably, uh, the FBI has been through their communications, their cell phones, their text messages, their emails, their social media postings by now. And yet, you write, they do not see a connection between the White House and the run-up to January 6th and what actually took place in the Capitol. That's correct. I mean, in fact, I was told very early on after the riot that the FBI was, in fact, looking at, you know, the possibility of charges from the top down, starting with Trump and going to people like Roger Stone and Alex Jones, who helped to organize or at least arguably were, were stirring up people who got involved in the riot and then lower down. And very early on, like last winter or March by March, I heard from people inside law enforcement that they they had just basically given up on that. They didn't have, they didn't see the evidence to link Trump and or people like Roger Stone, Alex Jones to crimes related to. But wait, the they riot, they right? have brought conspiracy cases. Uh, yeah, but those right? conspiracy cases are limited. 
The conspiracy cases are limited to specific groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters. I mean, those are they, they have brought conspiracy cases, but they haven't necessarily linked these conspiracies together, although there, there is some certainly some evidence that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were in contact with each other, if not working together. Well, conspiracy to do what then? Well, conspiracy to clearly engage in violence at the U.S. Capitol, but that doesn't make it an overall conspiracy that they can prove was directed by Trump and company. In a criminal case, right? That's what we're talking about, criminal. In a criminal case, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, the political issue is a whole different issue. I'd also point out, and because I've been listening to numerous of these riot-related hearings, including one just like that ended half an hour ago, that the prosecutors are now saying, believe it or not, they have 12,000 hours of video evidence from the riot, which constitutes 500 days, 500 days of constant video to watch. And they're saying, who, who can actually go through all this stuff and analyze all this stuff? It's just like too much evidence. So, you know, there's a question as to whether, and, and this could go either way in terms of the, the, the scope of the investigation. There's, a, there's so much evidence that there's a question as to who can actually get through it all and find the most important bits. Let me ask, since we have some very sharp lawyers on the podcast today. Uh, we have Cam, one. Our guest, uh, well, do we have any others? I think, I think our co-host, Victoria, counts as a oh, sharp Oh, right. I'm lawyer. sorry. Yes. Okay. Yes. What am I, a chopped liver? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, uh, maybe, you're a lawyer, which maybe, some might equate to being chopped yeah. liver. But I'm not a lawyer. Maybe, maybe it would be uh, useful to untangle you know, some of these legal terms because seems to me you know you, you know you, you can have you can have an insurrection without having a conspiracy perhaps i mean that's one question and then the term that we were all using at the outset in connection with trump which i haven't heard yet in this conversation is incitement incitement which is you know the provocation of unlawful behavior which the violent uprising on January 6th would count as. So help us unpack these various legal terms and theories, Kim, and Victoria, you should weigh in as well. Okay, so as Victoria indicated, there's a real difference between proof beyond a reasonable doubt of a crime that could persuade a jury to convict someone. Um, If that is not in existence, that doesn't mean that there's not wrongdoing, particularly from a policy standpoint, to protect the sanctity of the counting of the electoral college votes on or the certifications in January. Um, The Constitution itself in the 14th Amendment refers to rebellion and insurrection and says you cannot hold office if you engaged in that. That was about sort of post-Civil War having people that engaged in the rebellion being members of government going forward. The idea was, listen, we don't want it, it, quote, insurrection is continuing to muck up the water now that we're in a reconstruction phase. The Constitution doesn't define those two terms. Then there's a federal statute, 18 U.S.C. 2383, that says, quote, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority or gives aid or comfort to against the government, that can be a crime. So the big question is what constitutes a rebellion? What constitutes an insurrection? And if you just go to basic uh, legal definitions of say rebellion, um, in a the, you know law dictionary, it's an act of violent or open resistance 
to an established government. Now, I don't know how you, just as a matter of logic, uh, seeing all those people crawl through the Capitol, smashing things and, and causing people to be injured and killed is not an act of open resistance. So so the fact that well, the wait, FBI- Well, wait a second. They, they were trying to get the Congress to take an action, which the Congress did not take, and that is to reject the Electoral College tally. Is that a rebellion? Look, it clearly I mean, Mike, was you, a riot. Are you, comp- are you it confident was that you know in their mind? And- it, it clearly was a riot, and it clearly, you know, the the participants can clearly be called terrorists, as I believe one of the police officers who testified called them. That makes total sense. But rebellion, insurrection, absent an organized plot to accomplish something specific, has struck some people as a as a reach. And I think Mark's reporting kind of supports that. If the Justice Department can't find evidence that there was a specific plot to overturn the election. Well, let me back up a second. I mean, there's a difference between conspiracy and what I just defined as insurrection. And to back up rebellion, it doesn't say anything about intent. It doesn't say anything about achieving an objective. It says an act of violent or open resistance. And now this isn't in the constitution. This is not in a statute. Courts would have to give a definition of rebellion, but that doesn't suggest some big plot. That suggests you are actively resisting a an established government. And given what we saw, I, I just think as a matter of logic, that would arguably fit the definition. Now, conspiracy is different. Conspiracy does require a meeting of the minds and a step towards an objective. Doesn't mean you you accomplish the objective, but that you sort of, so a conspiracy could be if a couple of these these people to, to, spoke to each other and say, we are going to hang my, Mike Pence and kill Nancy Pelosi, that you could say that does look like an agreement to take down an existing government in the form of the vice president and House Speaker. The fact that that wasn't achieved doesn't make it not a conspiracy. Now, I have no insight into what the DOJ has, but their standards for bringing a case are much higher than I think most people understand. And they think of it in a very calculating way, as, as Victoria knows. It's really about, can we convince a jury? If we don't, we walk away, even if we have 98% of the evidence. If we don't have the last 2%, we're not bringing the case. And, and my, what my sources are saying is they don't believe they have sufficient evidence to bring that kind of broad case, either in general or against specific individuals, including Trump and Alex Jones and Roger Stone. And, and Mark, but, I just wanted to ask, Mark, what, were your sources definitive on this? This is like forever or or, no. or or is it that they're still developing the evidence? They're still looking at things. But right now they don't think they have the evidence. This was the status, um, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago. That doesn't mean that they won't come up with more evidence. They're certainly still gathering evidence. And, you know, that doesn't mean that ultimately they couldn't make a larger case. But it, but at least at the present, they don't have that. And again, I was told very early on, as I said earlier, that, you know, they, they did initially look at Trump, Ali Alexander, Raja Stone, you know, these people out there agitating who are on the record both publicly and through, you know, decoded message chatter, organizing or encouraging people to, to resist aggressively the certification of the election. But they but very early on, they decided there was insufficient evidence to go after these people. And Mark, setting aside the question of whether whether there was a 
conspiracy to overthrow the government that Trump could have been involved in. Did they address the question of whether, even if he wasn't involved in planning and, and organizing a conspiracy, did, did they address whether they may still be looking at him in terms of instigating this violent uprising with his with his rhetoric, the, the kind of the incitement idea? Certainly the information that I've got is that they are not looking at him for any of that stuff. Yeah, and we went through this early on. You know, Trump had the out in which he said, you know, I want you to march peacefully up there in spite of all the other inflammatory things he said. He he had that. And the Supreme Court test for what constitutes incitement is pretty high. There's got to be a direct connection between the words that are insightful or inciting and the violent acts. But Mark, let me just take you back to your piece for a moment, because I asked you before about the conspiracy charges that they have brought. And you point out in your piece that they had actually brought those against 40 of the defendants that include alleging that one Proud Boy leader recruited members and urged them to stockpile bulletproof vests and other military style equipments in the weeks before January 6th and sent members forward with a plan to split into groups and make multiple entries to the Capitol. Now, that sounds like plotting to do mayhem and break the law when they're talking about stockpiling weapons, bulletproof vests, and splitting into groups, doesn't it? Indeed. And it's interesting that you pick up on that because one of the more explicit or detailed complaints that I've had about the story is for a lawyer for that particular individual who I won't name, who is alleged in a government document, because I, I basically lifted that information from a, a prosecution or FBI document, the lawyer for this guy says, oh, well, in fact, there's evidence showing he didn't do any of those things. In fact, he discourages people from rioting and discourages people from attacking. Now, again, I don't know what the truth is. I know that the government certainly believes that the guy did encourage people to riot, but there's two sides, at least to some of these things, which are being aggressively challenged in some cases by the defense lawyers. And, you know, given that, I don't think we can uh, categorically, you know, say that at this point. So, Kim, uh, we've been really focused on January 6th because of uh, Hosenball's story. But you've also written about a kind of larger conspiracy to undermine the legitimacy of the election and for Trump to hold on to power and, in fact, misuse his office in that effort. Um, so those are two distinct issues that are governed by, you know, you know, different kind of legal theories. So talk a little bit about that other dimension to this story that I just mentioned. Yeah, so, you know, important distinction, as you indicate. I mean, there is a grand jury pending in, in D.C. Um, that's gathered information. There are conspiracy charges between individual insurrectionists. And I don't know how much this grand jury has actually gotten into the coffers of the government to find out what Trump was doing. I don't know how much the grand jury and the prosecutors and the FBI, and I'm not sure if Mark has any insights on that. So that's really what we're talking about. Not whether there's a conspiracy, but whether there's a conspiracy that loops in these people high in government, which arguably is what the January 6th insurrection is all about. Now, I mentioned the United States Constitution, which expressly in a pretty rare circumstance, I mean, it's pretty rare to have this expressed in the Constitution, basically says, listen, people within government uh, that have participated in overthrowing a de democratic government can't be part of government. Now, 
you know, that that is a sort of more of a meta separation of powers constitutional question when it comes to Donald Trump. I think we are, as a constitutional scholar, uh, we're in very precarious waters on a broader level because this January 6th insurrection has gained steam as a justification for not just justifying new legislation to stop the means of casting votes, right? Texas, Georgia, we're hearing all this stuff, but counting the votes so that in 2022, if the Congress goes to the to Republican leadership, um, then when 2024 rolls around January or November 4th, say there's enough people who cast votes for a Democrat, Republicans in state legislatures could say, well, we have so much fraud, we're going to ignore the popular vote, give it to our politician of choice. And even if the certifications get through that process, a Republican-led Congress, given what happened in January last round, could say, you know what, given all the fraud and the big lie, we're going to ignore the certifications and when we gavel in everybody on, in January, we're going to give it to our choice. Um, now, the Electoral Count Act, the Electoral Count Act is from 1887, and it does allow technically the law, which implements the Electoral College, does have those loopholes. There's no law preventing that. Kim, can you just talk about the underlying acts here? I think it's important for our listeners to understand the context here. What are the specific acts that you're referring to? I mean, for example, you write about Trump, who is on the phone you know, repeatedly to the acting attorney general trying to get him to dispute the outcome of the election, the conversations with the head of the civil division, Jeffrey Clark, who has drafted this letter that he wants the acting attorney general, uh, Mr. Rosen, to send out saying that uh, disputing the, the election results. So what are the underlying acts here that are at issue? Yeah. So the, so the OK, so the question is, why is it that people are focusing on Donald Trump as somehow undermining democracy itself and the steps that he took leading up to the January 6th rebellion, insurrection, riot, whatever you want to call it? Um, and I think it started with sort of, you know, earlier in the summer, um, arguing about the postal services, the legitimacy of that, the legitimacy of mail-in voting, kind of prepping people. I wouldn't say that that undermines the election, but it culminated, of course, post November 4th with what we found out being acts within the Justice Department attempting to influence the Justice Department to in turn influence the states and how they're counting electoral votes. Donald Trump is under criminal investigation in Georgia for calling former, or he's still a Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, asking that he find enough votes to sway the election. Um, and then it's calling people to come to the, you know, uh, the Congress on that day. And he, again, I agree with Mike that there's it's a high standard for insurrection. I'm just not in agreement that the First Amendment is something that the president enjoys in the same way that other people. He has extraordinary amount of power. And there's a norm that we've had traditionally in this country that isn't the case in other parts of the world that call themselves democracy. And that's around the peaceful transition of power. The other piece that is stunning is the level of violence that has now been injected into our electoral system. Experts in this area anticipate more of it in part, because in addition to the suppression efforts that have happened across the country, whatever you 
want to call it, voter anti-fraud measures to make it more difficult to vote, is empowering poll watchers to hover over voters, to hover over people who are counting the votes. Thousands of regular Americans who go to the polls during a pandemic to make elections work. A lot of them are volunteers. There are new criminal penalties for them making good faith errors, massive financial penalties for making good faith errors. It's a systematic breakdown or disintegration of voting both at the, uh, the, the ballot casting side and the ballot counting side. And Donald Trump is the chief propagandist around this. I, I interviewed recently come out uh, an expert in totalitarianism on my on my Instagram show called Simple Politics, um, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who talks about sort of historically uh, people, I don't have this expertise, but people like Mussolini and Hitler. And this is not an that this is not an uncommon unraveling of democratic systems that we all have come to enjoy. We assume we'll wake up in the morning, there'll be democracy. And we're in very dark waters due in part to Donald Trump. That's not about something that necessarily the courts are positioned to fix. This is not about putting Donald Trump in jail. Um, This is about guardrails. I just want to kind of bring it back to the commission and the congressional committee that just issued these requests for information this week. And maybe just like make clear for our listeners that there are multiple information and fact gathering organizations and, and groups that are, uh, you know, underway, everything from the commission to civil litigation. We, we interviewed, you know, Eric Swalwell, who's suing Trump to the FBI and DOJ investigations. And then there are multiple avenues for accountability surrounding what Trump did or didn't do and what other multiple players along this, you know, kind of food chain, insurrection food chain, let's call it, right? And so, you know, the, the commission is doing one thing and took a big step forward today in terms of their information gathering. And I just kind of want to ask, Kim, you know, is this a fishing expedition that the commission is is undertaking or is it more than that? And Mark, maybe you can jump in on that, too. Is this a fishing expedition? I mean, I wouldn't say it's a fishing expedition. That's a sort of a term of our people use in civil discovery. Like, okay, I've got a claim against Walmart for my slip and fall. So I want all of their personal records for the last 50 years so that maybe I can find something. I mean, I participated in the Ken Starr Whitewater investigation, which many people argued was a fishing expedition. In my own experience, a set of prosecutors didn't find something. So Judge Starr brought in a second set of prosecutors, for example, to relook at the same travel office. Somebody might say that's a fishing expedition expedition. I don't know. In this moment, we just don't have the facts yet. We don't know what happened. And so at this preliminary stage, it seems like this is routine fact gathering. We just need to set the stage and go through what needs needs to be combed through as a threshold matter, um, not to put people in jail, but to decide just like it happened post Watergate. So I have a big law review coming out in a pen, a law review journal on the post Watergate legislation. Congress looked at what happened and put in place inspectors general, amended the Freedom of Information Act, created the Federal Advisory Committee Act, other legislative tools in place to ensure accountability to the voting public. Well, no, what what worries me a little bit about this is something I raised a few minutes ago, which is the volume of the material involved. It's just like, so again, 12,000 hours of 500 days of video to watch alone, never mind the documents. How do you sort out the key bits in there and how do you demonstrate to the public that the bits that you're sorting out are not only material, but are fairly selected in inappropriate context. It, it, it's a massive undertaking. Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm not as 
terribly worried about that as you are, because I think when we go to the events of January 6th itself, we pretty much know what happened. You can happened. see what happened. No, we no. know what these people did. We've seen it, you know, quite a bit now. There's plenty of video that demonstrates the violence and mayhem that these people were involved in. You know, the question we're talking about here is to what extent was it pre-planned by folks and how high up, if at and all, directed, does yeah. it go, no, right? Agree. You know, yeah. was well, it directed? Well, and also, right? what about the meltdown in terms of, of law enforcement and anticipating this? Why were steps not taken? Well, that, but that's a totally separate question. That's not a conspiracy. I don't think so. I mean, because we that, don't want to... Did, did the intel agencies and the law enforcement agencies do their job in adequately assessing the, the intelligence that they had? Nobody imputes bad faith to them. It's no, just a question they a of where of they command. pay attention to the right things. They're right? in a chain of command, though. And in fact, there is certainly people, or there are certainly people within the Department of Homeland Security, for example, who say that uh, they had collected a bunch of information that was potentially alarming about what might happen, and that that was sat on by the higher-ups in the Department of Homeland Security. So there are certainly intelligence-related issues that probably ought to be examined. Yeah, I mean, a plane crashes, there's a big investigation to determine why the plane crashes. I mean, January 6th was a plane crash for our democracy. I mean, we all watched it. I agree with you, Mike, we don't need 500 hours to watch, but we do need to figure out how that, what went wrong, which of the nuts and bolts fell off the machine. And that's what this commission is doing. It's not so much about Donald Trump per se, although I, it just seems logical to me, having been inside the government, also having lived here in Washington, you know, I'm not completely convinced this was just negligent or a holes in some of the uh, of the regulations or the requirements, especially given what's coming out of the White House. I think it's important to determine whether it was willful blindness, if nothing else. Listen, we're going to turn the other cheek. We're going to look the other way. We're going to hold the National Guard. We have reports of that. They weren't allowed to come in, notwithstanding what we're seeing on television. This is, uh, you know, this American people deserve to understand how this was allowed to happen, whether or not it was a criminal conspiracy from the top down from the White House which I think is also important to have a report definitively saying one way or the other whether there is evidence of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, one one question, you know, in my mind all along has been how far is this committee going to be able to go with this? Certainly subpoenas to the White House, to White House officials and the president and members of Congress will be resisted. It seems to me that certainly to the members of Congress, like Mo Brooks and others, they're going to resist on speech and debate clause alone and probably have a pretty persuasive argument to the courts that what they were what they were engaging in was a, a, something related to their congressional duties, whether to approve the Electoral College tally or not. That's a formal decision that Congress had to make, even as administrative as it was. It was a congressional action. So they've got a, uh, a pretty persuasive persuasive case there, I would think. And then you put on top of that, we know that Trump is going to invoke executive privilege and resist the subpoenas. And we know how long it takes for the courts to litigate these things. You know, witness uh, Don McGahn and how long it took to get him before Congress. So how optimistic can we be that uh, this is committee, the committee is going to be able to get very much? 
Well, I have a piece coming out in The Atlantic, I think tomorrow, on that very issue of the speech and debate clause. It's never been addressed. Committee members seeking Congress, seeking information from Congress. The way the clause works, um, it actually, arguably, the plain language of it excludes testimony in Congress. The idea is that you don't want the other two branches to be bullying members of Congress through, say, criminal prosecutions based on their speech. And the court, there is a bunch of, there's quite a bit of case law around non-legislative acts, even in their in their official capacity. So, for example, the court has held that a uh, sort of a committee staffer, I think it was a member, a counsel or a lawyer for a subcommittee, um, wanted to not testify about unproven allegations of conspiracy to violate third parties' constitutional rights. And the court said that's not legitimate legislative activity, for example. So I do think there'll be a question as to whether participation in whatever you want to call it, rebellion, riot, insurrection, it was clearly a riot in violation of D.C. law. I mean, it surely was violence. And, and it was, no argument on that so, at all. So it was, so, you know, but I agree with you completely, Mike, that this is, it's a question of first impression. It hasn't been addressed. It'll go all the way to the U.S. And Supreme I would say that the particular legislative function of uh, accepting the electoral college tally is mandated in the constitution it is something that congress does so well it depends on i mean i don't think they're going to say we can't testify at all I think that what would probably come down to it would be it would be a question by question thing, kind of like executive privilege or attorney client privilege. It doesn't necessarily prevent you from not testifying, period, like I was there and this is what I saw um, versus, you know, how were you thinking about what you were going to vote on when it came to your chance to vote? I, I doubt it would be a blanket privilege. It's been used as a testimonial privilege to sort of raise issue by issue. Uh, I just don't think there's a strong argument if you participate in something that led to that level of violence that you're just immune from any scrutiny. I think that would be tough. And we saw, for example, in Trump versus Mazars, even Justice Kavanaugh on this conservative court, a similar argument was made with respect to the, a sitting president's tax record, records and his business records said, listen, sitting president, executive privilege, even uh, and under opinion authored by Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Kavanaugh joined it, um, only Alito and Thomas dissented, they said, no, actually, there is no such blanket executive privilege just because you're president. And I think it's even weaker, probably for legislators. That's not saying I'm predicting how it would come out, but I don't think it's such a slam dunk for the likes of Mo Brooks, but it would it would go for months litigation. Um, yeah. And certainly the president's own, you know, Trump's own resistance will you know, go all the way to the Supreme Court and take quite a while. Mark, just to wrap up your own expectation from the January 6th uh, committee. I don't really know what to expect. I mean, they're clearly going to collect, collect a lot of information, uh, a lot of evidence. The question is, can they sort it out in a way that they can uh, make points fairly to the public uh, based on the evidence? We don't really know that much about the people who are actually running the investigation. And in fact, there have been co some complaints about, I think, the guy that's been hired as the staff director who worked as an inspector general somewhere, but that doesn't necessarily bother me. He worked I, I at the CIA I, and he's accused yeah, CIA, of retaliating yeah. against whistleblowers. But I, I don't know that that's relevant. In fact, maybe that's good in some ways because it gives him some credibility. I don't really know what to expect. The real thing I think they should try and avoid is making it look partisan. They should really go out of their way to make it look as bipartisan or nonpartisan as they can, which is, of course, is difficult because they're being boycotted by 
Kevin McCarthy and, and most of the Republicans. Well, they're not being boycotted by McCarthy. Pelosi refused to accept uh, McCarthy's selection. Selections, yeah. No, a few, a few yeah, of then, her selections, then he boy, not then all he boycotted. Yeah. I was going to say that on the partisanship or bipartisanship point, I mean, the upside to this being you know, dragged out with litigation and obstruction and whatever else is that it's going to go on through the midterm elections and anything that the Democrats can do to keep this front and center for voters. Well, if they don't wrap it up before the uh, midterms, they may have a problem afterwards (laughs) because they may no longer be in charge. But anyway, something we will all be watching. And um, uh, Kim and Mark, we will definitely want to have both of you back as this unfolds. But thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you.